Hi, I'm Isra Kwonga. And I'm Ryan Hunt. And we co-host Stadio, a football podcast on the Ringer Podcast Network. If you like soccer or football, make sure you search for Stadio, a football podcast on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. It's Off the Pike, presented by FanDuel. The road to the NBA Finals starts now, and FanDuel is the best place to get in on the action. Right now, you can check out the new and improved Quick Bets, which are back and better than ever for the NBA playoffs on FanDuel. Find what you're looking for faster and easier with more props right at your fingertips. You can check out live bets like 3-Minute Markets and exclusive live bets like quarter player props, player assist combos, and more. So download the app today and bet with FanDuel, official partner of the NBA. The Ringer is committed to responsible gaming. Please visit rg-help.com to learn more about the resources and helplines available and listen to the end of this episode for additional details. Must be 21 plus, 18 plus in DC and present in select states. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit rg-help.com. This episode is brought to you by Thomas's. Thomas's presents Pondering the Bagel with Tom. Oh, the paradox of the bagel. Tis crunchy yet soft. Tis filling yet has a hole. Tis a vehicle for spreads, but only travels from toaster to plate. Thomas's. Huzzah! A toast to breakfast. Welcome into Off the Pike. I'm Brian Barrett. We're recording this last part of the pod after the Bees just clinched the wins record. 63 wins. 63 wins for the Bruins. Okay, more on that in just a second. We will get into the Seas. The playoffs finally here. So I want to rank on a scale of 1 to 10 how much pressure Jason Tatum, Jalen Brown, and Joe Mazzula are each facing as we get ready for the postseason here, which will start a week from Saturday. The NBA announced that the Celtics will play that 3.30 game on Saturday. Of course, opponent TBD waiting on the Heat and the Hawks playing game. In addition to that, I want to get to a poll question I had on Twitter late last week, which is who will have the best postseason, Malcolm Brogdon, Derek White, or Marcus Smart? I'll give you my take on that. This one is a really difficult decision for me, so I'll get into that in just a little bit. And finally, we'll get to the Red Sox. Their great weekend has been ruined, right? They swept the Detroit Tigers. They bounced back after everything that transpired with the Pittsburgh Pirates. So they bounced back, and then we get the Adam Duvall situation where he goes out of the game, and the Red Sox said that we'll get an answer on this tomorrow. Now, what we do know right now is Chris Smith from Mass Live reported that Bobby Dahlbeck is heading to Tampa. Does not look good. So it looks like Bobby Dahlbeck is probably going to take Adam Duvall's spot. And it looks like Duvall's heading to the injured list, which is just, it's so unfortunate. He'd been such a great story so far this season. So we'll get into that in a little bit as well. But back to the bees. Think about the two teams they just passed to set the all-time wins record. The 95-96 Red Wings and the 18-19 Tampa Bay Lightning. Now, neither team won the Cup, so you're hoping the Bruins are different from those teams when it comes to that, obviously. But the Red Wings, they won the next two seasons. They won the Cup the next two years after that. Same thing with the Lightning, but they won back-to-back after that. But look at those teams. (laughs) You go back to the Red Wings in the 90s with Fedorov and Yzerman and Paul Coffey, just loaded, right? Hall of Famers all over the place. And then that Lightning team was unreal for like a three-year period. They even made it back to the Cup last year when... You would think they were absolutely exhausted after going to the Stanley Cup back-to-back years. That season, they had three guys that had 90-point seasons. Nikita Kucherov with 128. Of course, he won the Hart Trophy that year. Steven Stamkos had 98, and Braden Point had 92. The Vesna Trophy winner was on that team as well, and Andre Vasilevsky. 
And Victor Hedman had won the Norris Trophy the year before. And at that particular point in time, and you could still say, well, I guess you can go with Cal McCarr as well. But at that time, the best defenseman in the NHL. So you had the top scorer, you had the best defenseman from the previous season, and quite frankly, at that season as well, and the best goalie in the world. The Bruins just passed the Red Wings with all those Hall of Famers in that Lightning team that was an absolute wagon. We're talking about crazy, crazy, crazy talented teams, right? It's just incredible to think about what the Bruins just did as they finish it off against the Flyers in like great Bruins fashion too, Pasternak with a hat trick. But to see the Bruins pass those two teams that were unstoppable forces, it's unbelievable. And you would have never thought that this Bruins team would be living in this neighborhood with that Lightning team and that Detroit Red Wings team. And I thought before the season, you know what, they're going to be a playoff team. But I was concerned. I don't even know if they can win a round after what we saw against Carolina last year. And the East coming into the season, and it is bared out, it was going to be a loaded Eastern Conference, right, with a lot of good teams. And that's true. But the Bruins have been so much better than everybody else. So the other thing I would just look at is... Now, like if you're comparing the expectations, if they didn't win around, it'd be a total disaster. And before the season, I'm asking myself, like, hey, can they do it? And now <laughs> looking at this, too, it reminds me of the Mariners in 2001 when they won 116 games. So they kind of just came out of nowhere and set history, right? Because remember that 01 Mariners team, Griffey was gone, Randy Johnson was gone, and Alex Rodriguez was gone. Now, you still had Brett Boone, who was tremendous at that time. John Ulrud had a really good season. You still had Edgar Martinez that was still hitting north of 300 at that time. But the rotation, it was like Freddie Garcia, Jamie Moyer. Like, that was not a team that you would have looked at before the season and said, hey, they're chasing down history. If a team was going to get 116, you would have thought like the Yankees at that time, who actually, what, in 98, they won 114. But it wasn't like the 07 Patriots where it's like, oh, well, it makes sense that this team is chasing down history based on what we thought preseason when they added Randy Moss with Tom Brady or that Bulls team that won 72 games with Michael Jordan. You're like, oh, yeah, this does make sense that they're on the verge of breaking the record. Right. But for this Bruins team to do it, nobody ever saw that. And like that Lightning team in 1819, you're like, oh, yeah, it kind of makes sense that they're chasing down the wins record. And then when you looked at that 95, 96 Red Wings team, it's like, oh, yeah, it makes sense that this team is on this type of a run. But the Bruins, just one of the biggest surprises we've seen in terms of this team just all of a sudden becoming a wagon. And that's sort of how this Bruins thing feels, right? It's just, it's unbelievable. Nobody thought this was coming. But going from way better to, like, they were way better than I thought they were going to be. But going from that to, hey, we're going to break the wins record in the NHL, I, I don't even know how you get there. Like, at the beginning of the season, you're like, okay, yeah, they're going to be probably better than we thought. And now, all of a sudden, they have the most wins in NHL history. It's just remarkable. This Bruins team, prior to the season, from our friends at FanDuel, they were a plus 2,800. 2,800 to win the Cup. That was 12th in the NHL and 7th in the Eastern Conference. They just broke the wins record. And... <laughs> You just cannot understand how this happened. I guess you can when we go through some of it. But I'm just saying, like, the this team becoming the team that broke the wins record, it's just, it's absolutely fascinating. And think about everything that had to happen for this to go right. The coach had to be the right fit. I mean, we talked about it throughout the season, but Jim Montgomery was replacing a guy in Bruce Cassidy that went to a cup. And Bruce Cassidy, remember, he was hired like two minutes after he got let go by the Bruins by the... Knights, because they want to win a cup, they said, hey, that guy's out there that went to a Stanley Cup with the Bruins, yeah, we'll take him. So that, as a Bruins fan, kind of had you concerned, like, wait, hold on, are they making a mistake here? And they bring in Montgomery, his system works immediately, right? 
You have the defensemen more involved in the rush. And the Bruins went from 3.09 goals per game last season, which was 15th in the league, mediocre, up to 3.61 this year, second in the NHL. They did that because of Jim Montgomery and Jim Montgomery's system. Not take it away from the players, but Jim Montgomery had to implement his system. And you did this when your defense actually got better too. So you think about, okay, if they're going to be more involved in the rush, maybe the defense takes a little bit of a step back, but you'd be okay with that because the offense is going to be so much better. Actually, no, 2.09 goals per game against the best in the NHL. And look, it seems clear now that they needed to move on from Cassidy, but the narrative at the time was the Bruins fired the wrong guy, right? Oh, they should have fired Don Sweeney. They shouldn't have fired Bruce Cassidy. Bruce Cassidy's a good coach. Don Sweeney, everybody was all over him, right? So... That narrative was the biggest narrative I felt like in the city after the firing. It's not even about Jim Montgomery. It was about moving on from Bruce Cassidy. And look, Montgomery needed the buy-in from the players, which of course he got. But also, we knew he won a national championship at the collegiate level at Denver. But it's not like this guy had this unbelievable pedigree, right? He led Dallas to the postseason in 18-19. And then the next year he was fired. Remember, he checked himself into a rehab facility because he was dealing with alcohol abuse. So... He coached for a season and a couple games the next year. To, I mean, not just a couple games, but he was fired in his second season with Dallas. So he really didn't have a resume as an NHL coach, and he was on the Blues bench the past couple of years as, as an assistant. But this wasn't like some slam dunk hire initially. You weren't looking at it and saying, hey, this is like Nick Saban going to Alabama or Urban Meyer going to Ohio State. Nobody thought that it was like, oh, OK, um, Jim Montgomery. This is the new coach of the Bruins replacing Bruce Cassidy, right? So it wasn't. This thing where when, once they hired him, everybody was fired up or anything along those lines. Like I even remember going back to when the Celtics originally hired Brad Stevens, thinking, oh, that's outside the box. This is a really good idea. I love it. Like, this guy's really going to work. I could say the same thing about when they hired Alex Cora away from the Houston Astros. Everybody thought Cora was going to be a great manager. So we're all like, okay, this is going to be outstanding having Alex Cora come here. But nobody thought that about Montgomery. So not only did he get the buy-in, he took the squad to a totally different level, right? And think about what else happened for this team. So first of all, you had the coach. Like that had to be a slam dunk hire, and it was. And he was way better than anybody possibly could have expected. And then think about all this other stuff. They needed Krejci to come back to center that second line, and he's missed some time now, but really solid season for Krejci. And part of that was Bruce Cassidy wasn't here anymore. He wasn't going to come back if Bruce Cassidy was here. But you needed to nail that Pavel Zaka trade. He scored again on Sunday after <laughs> scoring a bunch on Saturday, or scoring twice on Saturday, I should say. And remember, for so many years... We talked about finding wingers, the right ones for Krejci. Finally, you have it with Pasta. Of course, you know, Pasta could always play with Krejci, but you're dropping Pasta down on that line all the time. And then you have Zaka, who has fit in perfectly. And remember, Zaka, career high this year, 55 points. That goes up after today. But his previous career high, he beat by 19 points. So it's a massive leap forward for what you got from Pavel Zaka. And that's identifying a guy that was going to fit in the system. Excellent job by Don Sweeney when it comes to that. Just unbelievable chemistry Zaka has with Krejci and Pasternak. Also, you needed Pasta to take another step forward. Career highs across the board, right? <laughs> and you saw it again in the clincher against Philadelphia, the clincher to win the most games in NHL history. is tremendous. Three goals, a hat trick again. You need another elite year from Bergeron. And he's going to win another Selkie. So you got the elite year from Bergeron. You got the step forward from Pasta. 
and you needed to get off to a good start without Marshawn and McAvoy because those guys were coming off off-season surgery. This is another reason this is so unlikely. Two of your best players weren't even available to begin the season. And when McAvoy comes back in the lineup, the team's 11-2-0. I mean, they were rolling without their top defenseman. And then you needed Lindholm, especially at the beginning of the year with everything going on with McAvoy. He needed to take a step forward, and he did. Plus 46, plus minus, entering Sunday's play, best in the NHL. Career high in points at 52. Previous career high was 31. So you're talking about a 21-point difference when it comes to that. Then you needed a good third line, right? We gave you the Coyle numbers last week when we were talking about, talking with Andrew Raycroft about just how dominant Coyle has been in the defensive zone. He's been incredible. Hall, before the injury, and played on Saturday, of course, had a solid season, especially for what you were asking him to do. He was part of the shutdown line. Taylor Hall, a Hart Trophy winner, is on the shutdown line for the Bruins now. It's remarkable. And then the Orlov and the Hathaway moves. Thus far, they've been big contributors. And Bertuzzi. Bertuzzi's been really good for this team as well. And then you also needed your goalie to win the Vesna. He had to be the best goalie in the in the NHL in Allmark. And that's the only unfortunate part about the Bruins clinching in Philly. Allmark didn't make the trip. Not that it's anything serious, but he didn't make the trip. So he didn't get the goalie hug with Swayman after the game. But think about this. Allmark's going to win the Vesna. 1.89 goals against first. Only guy under two. 938 save percentage first. And so you need him to play like a Vesna trophy winning goalie, which he's going to win the Vesna. Then you needed his backup to be great. Swayman entering Sunday, 2.20 goals against third, 921 save percentage, fourth. So he's <laughs> playing like a top four goalie in the NHL when the guy that he's backing up has played like the best goalie in the NHL. So just to review, you needed to find the right coach and a coach with a system that could take you from a mediocre offensive team by the numbers. I'm not saying the talent by the numbers to an elite team. You did that. You need your star, David Pasternak, to have his best season ever. He did. Goalie needs to play at a Vesna level. He did. Actually, two of them played at a Vesna level. Lindholm needed to take, take another step. He did. Zaka needed to fit with Krejci and Pasternak. He did. The third line needed to be a legit shutdown line. It has been. So it's just so many things that had to happen for this to occur. It's just insane. So now I get it. Like if they don't win the Stanley Cup, this is going to feel hollow. But you have to take a step back over the next couple of days and just appreciate how crazy this has been, and how fun this team has been to watch. The Bruins this season became appointment television. Like, you wanted to watch them every night, especially, too, just like the entertainment factor of Pasternak and just how dangerous he is on the ice. So just take a step back before we get ready for the postseason and enjoy this. And look, I'm with you. Like, if they don't win the Stanley Cup, it is going to be like, ah, yeah, that was great, but they didn't finish the job, right? What makes it special for the Red Wings and the Lightning, even though they didn't win that year, they still got cups after that. And with this Bruins team, the window may be smaller just because of the age of Bergeron and the age of Krejci. But the point being is <laughs> I cannot believe that this happened. This is one of the craziest storylines I can remember in Boston sports history. This Bruins team just set the record for the most wins in NHL history. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. We're not all professional athletes, but we all have health goals. That's why Anytime Fitness gives you access to personalized plans and support from a coach. Plus, you can track your training, nutrition, and recovery progress with the Anytime Fitness app, just like the pros. With 24-7 access to more than 5,000 gyms worldwide, get more from your gym membership. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, restrictions, all apply. See website for details. 
All right, I do want to get to the Celtics because the season now officially over for the season in terms of the regular season as we get ready for the playoffs next weekend. Of course, we got to wait the play-in matchup between Miami and Atlanta. <laughs> the season finale on Sunday, none of the regulars played besides Derek White got in there at the beginning of the game just so he could finish off playing all 82 games, which I do appreciate. You don't see that much in the modern-day NBA. And Peyton Pritchard <laughs> had a 30-point triple-double. The other guys to do that, I saw Grandy tweet this out, were... Larry Bird and John Havlicek in terms of as Celtics and Peyton Pritchard now joins that group of players, which is just remarkable to think about. Like, that's going to be a great trivia question years from now. But nonetheless, the game on Sunday was completely meaningless because the Celtics had already locked up that number two seed. So I did want to get into now that we're getting ready for the playoffs and we'll have more later on in the week in terms of when we find out who the opponent is going to be. Knock on wood that it's Atlanta and not Miami, but I'm not very optimistic that that's the actual result we're going to get. But nonetheless, I wanted to go through the three most important figures on this team, Joe Mazzulla, Jason Tatum, and Jalen Brown, and rank on a scale of one to 10, how much pressure each one of these guys is facing, 10, of course, being the most pressure. So I'll start with Jason Tatum, and I'm going to put it at an eight in terms of the pressure scale one to 10. I'm saying going into this postseason, he's at about an eight. The reason I don't say 10 is because of his age, right? So if you look at it in terms of guys that won championships when they were young, Magic did it at 20, Kobe did it at 21, but he was playing with Shaq. Duncan did it at 23, one of the all-time greats, of course. Wade was 24, he was playing with Shaq, and Bird was 24 when he won his first championship. So basically it's these all-time legends, Larry Bird, Magic Johnson, Tim Duncan, or guys like Kobe and Wade that were playing with a legend in Shaquille O'Neal, right? But what we ordinarily see in the NBA is these guys went around 27 or 28. So, for example, Steph Curry, first championship came when he was 27. LeBron James, 27. Shaq was 28. Michael Jordan was 28. So now this is Jason Tatum's 24-year-old season. He's 25, but this is technically his 24-year-old season. So he's really technically almost not even in his prime yet, right, when you think about it in terms of the age. Now, Here's the other thing I'll say about Tatum, though. I don't think there's another huge jump coming next season. The one thing that we could obviously use is him becoming a more consistent jump shooter, right? You look at it last year, he's at 35.3% from three. That number's at 35% this season, and that's below average. The average in the NBA is 36%. The big jump he made this year, and we've documented this as the free throws, right? He went to 8.4 free throws per game, which was ninth in the NBA. Last year, that number was at 6.2, which was 15th. So despite that three-point shooting not improving, basically plateaued as a three-point shooter this year, you still were able to get your numbers up in terms of the points because of the fact that you're somebody that got to the free throw line 8.4 times per game. So I don't see that number going up next year, right? Like if you look at it on the season, I don't see him getting up to 10. I mean, the only guys that are in double digits this year are Embiid and Giannis. I don't see Jason Tatum getting there next season. So the reason I bring up that big jump, it's because I think This right now, this version of Jason Tatum is pretty close to who he's going to be. So he'll make marginal improvements, but this was the massive leap season for Jason Tatum from my perspective. So the reason that number could easily be a 10 is because I just don't think as a player, Jason Tatum's going to get significantly better than he is right now. But I'm going to put it at an eight just because of the age of Tatum. But there are obvious reasons for the pressure for Tatum, okay? He's the best player on the team, obviously. He's going to be a first-team All-NBA guy for the second straight season, and he's got to back up the all-NBA season he just had 
by making up for what he did in the finals last season. Like, we have to realize, like, hey, these improvements you made during the regular season, they have to carry over to the postseason because he was just so bad. You can't get around it. As much as I love Jason Tatum, he was absolutely atrocious in the NBA finals. And there was no question who the best player was. Steph Curry was way better than Jason Tatum last year. So the other reason, though, is we can look at this Celtics team and say, hey, they're going to be competing for years to come. Every year, they're going to be at least a participant deep into the postseason, right? But we've seen this throughout NBA history. So we may take this for granted. We're like, oh, Jalen and Tatum, they're young guys. But think about it throughout NBA history. You look at those Clippers teams with Chris Paul and Blake Griffin. They never did anything. And I thought that was a team that was definitely at least going to get to a finals. They never did. Jason Tatum's already done that. But you look at, say, like the 90s Orlando Magic, where they didn't win against the Rockets, that team with Hakeem Olajuwon. And then the next year, Michael Jordan comes back. They lose to Michael Jordan, and they had beaten Michael Jordan the previous season. And that group breaks up, right, because Shaq and his contract situation. But Shaq and Penny, we all thought they were going to win a championship. They had good role players, too, the Derek Scotts of the world, the Nick Andersons of the world. We thought that team was going to win a championship. They never did. The Thunder went to the finals with Durant, Westbrook, and Harden. Now, they traded Harden, which was obviously a terrible move. But the point being with that is you still felt like Durant and Westbrook were good enough to win a championship together. Heck, they had the Golden State Warriors. They were leading them three games to one in the conference finals. They could have very easily won a championship that year. No disrespect to the Cavaliers, but they easily could have won a championship that season, right? I mean, the Cavs were great. I'm just saying, like, they had chances where they, we thought that the Durant-Westbrook pairing would win a championship. So my whole point of this is just the history of the league. It doesn't always happen like you think it's going to happen, right? Like this team's got to win a championship at some point. It doesn't always happen that way. And I look at this team and I hope Jalen just gets his super max and he's here long term and we don't have to deal with any of the drama going forward in terms of, hey, does he want to be in Boston? Does he want to play for the Celtics, et cetera? But what if he's not an all-NBA guy this year? Like there is a real possibility that Jalen Brown doesn't make an all-NBA team. So if that's a possibility... That opens up the door for him entertaining leaving the organization in two years, right? Because it makes no sense for him to sign the extension this offseason with the Celtics, even though in the new CBA, you can extend for 140% in terms of the increase rather than 120%, but it's still nowhere near a max contract, right? So if he doesn't get that super max this offseason, then we're back to this whole situation with, hey, could Jalen possibly leave the following season, right? And then Tatum himself, along with Jalen, Will he ever have another guy this good with him, right? Like, and with Jalen, I don't see Jalen taking another big leap. He took a leap after the All-Star break. I don't see another big, huge leap for Jalen Brown. And I'm not saying either one of these guys really have to take huge leaps, right? They're elite players in the NBA right now. But I'm just saying, like, Jalen is in his prime, it feels like, right now. But are the rest of the guys on this team besides Jalen and Tatum, who, like I said, they're not going to take big leaps, but they will improve. But the rest of the guys, the rest of the supporting cast, are they going to take big steps forward, right? So if you're Jason Tatum, you have Jalen Brown, who's playing the best basketball of his career. He's averaging 26.6 points per game. And in this playoff run, right, if you just look at the teams that will be participating in the postseason, how many guys have a better 1B, if you will, where... I think it's unfair to call Jalen a number two at this point. He's really a 1B. You could argue Devin Booker for Kevin Durant. You could argue Anthony Davis for LeBron or maybe LeBron for Anthony Davis the way that Anthony Davis has been playing. But you get my point. If you want to have an argument that there is a better 1B, whether it be, like I said, Devin Booker, fine, you can have that argument, argument, but Jalen is in the conversation. Jalen is right there in terms of the best 1B options in the NBA right now. So that's one thing Tatum has. 
And then you think about the rest of this roster and how good it's been for Jason Tatum. Malcolm Brogdon just shot 44.4% from three this year. That was fourth in the NBA. He, as I talked about last week, is having his best stretch as a Celtic. He is the element they didn't have last year, a third guy that can create and get his own basket. They didn't have that last year. It was crystal clear in the Warriors series. They have it now. Al Horford shot 44.6% from three this year. That was third in the NBA. Obviously a career high, and he's a center, but he's 36 now. Is Al going to have a better season than the one that he just had? And this isn't an indictment on Al. It's just the reality of the fact that this guy is 36 at the moment. Okay. And I will knock on wood. Okay. At the moment, Robert Williams is healthy. Okay. And we know how impactful Robert Williams is, right? Last seven games, the Celtics have a 96.4 defensive rating with Rob on the court. That is downright dominant. That number for the season, the Celtics defense with Rob on the court is at 105. And 110 is the best in the league this year. He's at 105, okay? When he's on the court, the Celtics are five points better than the best defense in the NBA, right? And you look at a guy like Jaron Jackson, for example, who has a really good chance at winning the Defensive Player of the Year. The Grizzlies are a 106.6 defensive rating with him on the floor. The Celtics with Rob have a 105. So he has a Defensive Player of the Year level impact when he's on the floor. And look, this could all change, as I said, knock on wood, in game two of their first series and Rob goes down because we've seen Rob suffer all these injuries throughout his career. But right now, he appears to be healthy and he looks like Rob. They did not have him last year to begin the postseason. They really didn't have Rob Williams the entire postseason until he started to look like himself against the Golden State Warriors. So this is something where I hate to say this, but how many healthy playoff runs are the Celtics going to have from Robert Williams? It's just the reality of where he's at in his career. The guy is always hurt. So if he is healthy, you have to cash in with that defensive player of the year level impact going into the postseason with you. Another guy, Derek White, is having his best season. He's a real connector to the Celtics offense. Entering Sunday, he was at a plus 483 in terms of when he's on the court, the Celtics have outscored their opponents by 483 points. Fourth in the NBA, First among non-Denver Nuggets. So you have Jokic and two guys that play with Jokic. So he impacts winning, right? And he's right in front of Drew Holiday on that list, by the way. So he's the perfect sort of role player, right? Where he entered the final day of the season shooting 38% from deep. He had no confidence at times last year shooting the basketball, right? Derek White is a significantly better version of the guy we saw last year, right? You go back to those numbers in the postseason. You know what he shot from three? 31.3%. So almost a full five percentage points worse than the league average. And this year he's shooting north of 38%. So he puts in a ton of work to get there naturally, right? Like he works so hard in the offseason to improve his shooting and he's shooting with confidence. And then you have Smart, who I know has battled injuries this year, but he hasn't been that same level of defender from an impact perspective, right? You look at Smart this year, the Celtics are actually worse by 3.6 points per 100 possessions with him on the floor defensively. That's in the 20th percentile. Last year, they were two points better per 100 possessions when he was on the court. That's in the 67th percentile, these numbers from cleaning the glass. So, and you also look at the isolation numbers, right? Smart is an ISO defender. And look, tracking data is not perfect, but he's in the 16th percentile there. Players are shooting 51.3% against him in isolation. So last year, that number was at 26.5%. He was in the 93rd percentile. This year, he's in the 16th percentile. And we're talking about the field goal percentage. It's 25 percentage points in terms of the difference. So that is a massive number. Now, maybe he gets back to being smart in the playoffs, and maybe he just has a healthier season next year. But remember, he's dealt with a lot of injuries throughout his career, has Marcus Smart. He's now 20 years old. 
And this may be the reality of who he is right now. He just may not be the same athlete that he used to be. And if he's not an elite level defender, how many great years does he really have left with we saw the slippage this year defensively. And then just as a player, like, yes, he's a very good passer, but he's not going to create his own shot. He's not going to get into the lane and find guys like that way. He's a good passer, but he's not like getting downhill on you. Right. And then he can't shoot. So if Marcus Smart isn't an elite defender, how good of a player is he in the next two to three years? So that's another thing that I would throw out there. So just to put a ball on that roster argument, Jason Tatum may never play on a better team. This is my whole point about the pressure on Tatum. He may never play on a better team from a roster construction standpoint. He himself may have a better season, but he's never going to be on a team that is this good from a talent perspective. On defense, I know I just gave you guys those numbers, but there's not a player you can hide, right? Like, I, not a player I should say you need to hide. There's nobody on the Celtics team where you're like, hey, I'm going after that guy. I'm attacking. There's none of those guys, right? Like last year, that guy was Pritchard. Last year, that guy was Daniel Tice. You don't have that guy on the Celtics team this year. So you have elite defenders all over the place. And I know I just mentioned Smart's defense being down, but you got White. You have Robert Williams. You have all these guys. Jason Tatum's a great defender himself. So you have the defense and you have elite shooters in Brogdon and you have an unreal 1B in Jalen. You have a guy that is the most if not the most impactful defensive player in the NBA in Robert Williams. And I don't think that's hyperbolic to say. So it may seem like this window that the Celtics have with Tatum and Brown is wide open, but the reality is it may not be. This is how this league works. It changes so rapidly, right? All right. So one concern I have about Tatum. So I put this at an eight, but one concern I have about Tatum entering the postseason, and this, he's had an incredible season. He's having arguably a top five player season this year, right? Like you can make an argument, he'll be first team all NBA. Some of that has to do with games played, right? Like Durant right now has been better on like a per minute basis, but he doesn't play that much. Tatum will be an all NBA first teamer because he's out there the majority of the games, unlike Kevin Durant. But you can make an argument he's a top five guy. He is without question a top 10 guy in the league, okay? So I don't mean to be like super critical of Tatum. I'm just telling you one thing that concerns me when we get closer to this postseason run. And that is he's shooting just 41% on short mid-rangers, those are runners and floaters, right? That's in the 51st percentile. So he's barely averaged there. And he's shooting just 38% on long mid-rangers. That's in the 55th percentile. So not good either. So those numbers in the postseason last year for Tatum actually got even worse. 32.2% on short mid-rangers and 37% on long mid-rangers. And those were 6.8 field goal attempts between those two per game. So it wasn't like a small number, like that's a decent amount of field goal attempts you're taking on short mid-rangers and long mid-rangers, and he wasn't very effective there, right? Now, he'll get to the free throw line more, as I alluded to earlier, which will certainly help him. But Tatum, in their losses last year in the postseason, shot 36.7% from three. In their wins, 41%. So if the three wasn't falling, is he going to live at the free throw line this year? Or can he actually hit some of these tougher shots, the mid-range game, so to speak? Because what we've seen this year, those numbers have not gotten better. And if you look at two of the best small forwards in the NBA right now, and really of their generation, it's Kevin Durant and Kawhi Leonard. You look at Kevin Durant, short mid-rangers, 60%, 96th percentile. Tatum's at 41%. So you're talking about a 19% difference. 57% on long mid-rangers. Tatum's at 38%. So we're talking about a massive dip there as well. So then you look at Kawhi, because Durant's like the best mid-range guy in the game. Like maybe the best mid-range guy ever. I mean, well, you'd have to throw Jordan, of course, in the conversation. But Durant is like unbelievable as a mid-range assassin. But you look at Kawhi, 54% on short mid-rangers. Again, Tatum's at 41%. So you're talking about a difference in terms of 13 percentage points. 48% on long mid-rangers for Kawhi. Tatum at 38%. So 10% worse there. So with Durant and Kawhi, they can get to those spots 
that are considered to be tough shots and they can hit them consistently. What we've seen from Tatum is that really hasn't happened in his career. And this is one of the things that I wish he worked on more this season. And I know like analytically, it doesn't make sense, right? Like you want him taking more shots at the basket. You want him to take a lot of threes, right? Like that's the analytical game and get to the free throw line. I totally understand all that. But in the postseason, it gets more difficult to get to those analytical, analytically friendly shots, if you will. And throughout this season, we haven't seen Tatum be successful hitting those shots. Now, the good thing is Jalen's really good in that area, right? We've documented that, but not Tatum. Okay, so I give Tatum an eight in terms of the pressure just because I gave him a little break with the age because we ordinarily don't see these top tier guys win until they're 27 and 28, unless they're all time great legends like Magic Johnson and Larry Bird, right? But anyway, I want to get to this. So how about Joe Mazzulla? Where is the pressure on him? I would actually put this one at a nine, Okay. Now, we know he got the interim tag removed, and he's done a lot of good things this season. And look, I'm sure we'll get into more debates <laughs> throughout the postseason about Joe Mazzulla. But you look at this team right now, first in net rating, second in offense, second in defense. They were an absolute wagon this year. No way around it. Even though we had issues at times, they were a wagon. But besides Tatum, he will receive the most criticism if things do not go well. And I'll give you like just a couple of narratives I can come up with right now. Why did Smart close the game over Brogdon? Or why did Smart close the game over Derek White? Or why did they take 44 threes if they only hit 10 of them and shot 22%, take less threes? Like, these are the things we're going to be talking about if they lose in the postseason. And Joe has been so dialed into the three stuff, right? Like, he's always going back at people in terms of the three-point reliance and all that. But anyway, so the shooting is always going to fall on him. Like, when they miss a ton of threes, it's not even going to be the players that get blamed. Maybe Marcus Smart, because Marcus Smart, you know how polarizing he is as a player. Like, people that don't like Marcus Smart are going to attack him for everything that he does wrong, right? But when he plays well, they won't give him credit. But nonetheless, my whole point about this is, besides maybe Marcus Smart, like, it's not going to be the players that can blame for the threes. It's going to be the coach because that's his philosophy, right? And I will tell you this. There is going to be a game where Smart should not be out there. And we've documented it throughout the regular season with Derek White, with Malcolm Brogdon. And we've seen it too many times in the regular season for it not to at least happen a couple of times in the postseason, right? Like that is going to be a narrative. And we know the players love Joe Missoula, but if the players disagree with decisions that he makes late in these games, that can turn quickly, right? Like Malcolm Brogdon this year has not complained at all about not playing late in these games. Derek White does not complain, but if it's in the postseason and maybe some of the star players who I know love Marcus Smart, but they look and they say, well, um, you know, we have Malcolm, we have Derek White, why aren't we playing those guys? So that is certainly something to keep your eye on. And here's the thing, there isn't like an unreal coach there where it's like, okay, the Celtics just signed... Joe Mazzulla or just gave him the extension, whatever, took the interim tag off. But hey, this coach is available. That guy's really not there. I guess the one guy that could be available is Nick Nurse, who's had all these issues with Toronto. Quinn Snyder, I heard Bill talk about Quinn Snyder on his podcast. I don't know why he took the Atlanta job coaching Trey Young. I would not want to do that whatsoever. But nonetheless, like there isn't that big name where it's like, oh, Sean Payton of the NFL, right? Like you don't really have that guy. But I just feel like if the Celtics don't get to where we envision and they actually bow out a little bit earlier. Like if they ever lost to Philly in the second round and they have trouble with Miami again, that seat externally will get hotter. I don't believe that the Celtics would move on from after not even like one year. They just gave him an extension, right? I don't think that would happen. But I do think like outside of the building, you're going to hear that talk heat up. Like, hey, should Joe Mazzulla really be the coach of the Celtics? This guy just started coaching last season. And this is a team that needs to get over the top. Like, I do think that'll be a conversation. So I put him actually having more pressure than Jason Tatum, because I do feel like he's going to catch a lot of blame if the Celtics don't get to where they need to go to. All right, Jalen, this is the last guy I'll get to in terms of the pressure. 
He's unfortunately right now dealing with that laceration on his shooting hand, something about plants. I mean, that just sucks. But anyway, it doesn't look like it's going to be an issue from the playoffs, right? But I put Jalen's pressure rate, if you will, at five. I really don't think he's facing a lot of pressure, right? For a couple of reasons. So really, I think that Jalen can only elevate his perception nationally, right? I don't think anyone believes Jalen right now, obviously, is a top 10 player in the league. And look, to be clear, I don't either. But if he goes on an absolute heater in this playoff run and the Celtics win the championship, we're going to start talking about Jalen in sort of a different stratosphere as an NBA player. He's going to move up sort of those rankings of the best players in the league. So I think he can only elevate himself now. He could always miss some free throws late in games, which we've seen that. Or he could turn the ball over like he did last year. But that wouldn't be something new for us, right? Or even the national NBA fan knows about Jalen's issues with the turnovers going back to the finals last year. So I don't think that we would think less of him because he has those issues again. Obviously, we'll be pissed and we'll probably be yelling about it on the podcast if it happens. But we're not going to like change our mind on who Jalen is because that has been a part of him throughout his career. But anyway, now the other reason I think there's not a lot of pressure on Jalen is it doesn't affect him financially. The all NBA team is a regular season thing. So it isn't like he's playing for a contract. He's and he's playing for a contract now. He didn't put any pressure on himself, did he? I mean, the guy was remarkable this season. But the other part is, let's just say he doesn't get all NBA. He can go for it again next year. And if he truly is a free agent in 2024, it's not like a team's going to look at this postseason run and be like, hey, uh, I don't know if we should give Jalen a max because he had a bunch of turnovers. At this game. No, he's going to get a max contract in 2024, whether it's a super max with the Celtics after this year, whether it's a max with the Celtics or a super max after next year, or it's a max contract with another team. He's going to get a max contract, right? So, and the other component is Jalen isn't Tatum, right? Like Tatum is the guy with the signature shoe. Tatum's the guy that's been an all-NBA first teamer. Tatum's the guy that's going to finish fourth in the MVP voting. So Tatum is going to get the majority of the blame if the Celtics don't get to where they're going from a from a player perspective. It's not going to be Jalen. So those are the three main pieces in terms of the pressure. I have Jalen at a five. I have Missoula at a nine and Jason Tatum at eight. I would say there is pressure on Grant just because of the contract, right? <laughs> if he's out of the rotation, our team's going to be like, uh, are we sure? Everybody thought that Grant was going to get like $20 million. Are we sure that Grant's worth that? So I'd say there's a little pressure on Grant. Other than that, the players, Brogdon, White, Al, Rob, Smart, they're all under contract. And we just don't talk about the non-superstars like we talk about the superstars in terms of, hey, this guy doesn't have a ring, et cetera, right? And this guy's not, to, this guy doesn't have the mentality, right? Like that was a big thing with Tatum early in his career. Now, it would be great for those guys, especially Al with how much he changed his game. He took 325 threes this season at the age of 36. The most he's ever taken by a wide margin. He took five as a rookie. So it's been incredible how Al has sort of morphed mid-career into this spacer, if you will. He's always been a great defender, but he wasn't always a three-point shooter. He's the guy that would score on the block when he was in Atlanta. But the reason I say there isn't a ton of pressure, the two guys that'll get criticized the most are Tatum and Missoula, and then Jalen to some extent. But the rest of these guys, they're not going to catch many... I mean, we'll get mad at like if guys play poorly, but they're not facing a lot of pressure. The superstars face that type of pressure. Even a guy like Malcolm Brogdon, right? Like if Malcolm Brogdon was making this run with Indiana, yeah, but now he's not the guy anymore. Oh, I did want to get to this. So I put up a Twitter poll the other day and the question was, who will have the best postseason? Malcolm Brogdon, Derek White, or Marcus Smart? And the results are really close. Well, for two of them, Malcolm Brogdon, 47%, Derek White, 46%, and Marcus Smart, 7%. So not a lot of people buying into Smart having the best run out of these three. So we gave you all these numbers with Brogdon the other day about how great he's been. And I just told you how I think he's a totally different element for this team and all that. The case against Brogdon is probably his defense. His ISO defense has been bad. We talked about it with Smart earlier, but 
ISO defense in the 19th percentile, smart as we mentioned, 16th, but he has just a 0.90 net rating when he's on the floor with Tatum and Brown. So that trio together isn't even outscoring teams by one point per 100 possessions with those three on the court together. And he has an even rating when it's just him and Jalen out there and no Tatum. Now with Tatum, that number is north of 11. So that's sort of like the argument against Brogdon is, and I'll get to Derek White in a second here, is Brogdon plays really well when it's just him and Jason Tatum. He hasn't. The numbers have not shown up when he plays with both those guys in terms of the impact. And I think part of that is he was still getting used to sort of playing off the ball. So I'm not as concerned about that because what we saw late in the season here, Malcolm Brogdon played really well with Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown on the court together. So I'm not scared off by those numbers whatsoever. I think now he sort of gets the role a little bit more like the impact metrics don't love Malcolm Brogdon, but you also got to remember too, like he's not always playing with the best lineups because he's coming off the bench. But anyway, so Derek White, the, the argument for him is pretty clear, right? Like he fits like a glove on this team. You look at him with both Jalen and Jason Tatum outscoring teams by 10.7 points per 100 with just Tatum. That number is at 9.8 and with just Jalen, that's at 9.2. So he plays well when it's all three of them. He plays well when it's just him and Tatum. He plays well when it's just Jalen, because this, he's a connector to the offense, right? He's going to move the ball quickly. And now the improved shooting definitely helped those numbers. And we know he's an elite level defensive player. So Derek White is the safest bet here because, you know, he's just going to be a solid rock. Now, I hope that we don't see that situation where he's like afraid to shoot and he's missing shots. But I don't foresee that being a problem this year, because even the games that he doesn't shoot the ball well, he doesn't stop, right? Like he still has the confidence. Last year, he would just stop because I think he was scared that Ime was going to yank him out of the game. Now, smart with both Jalen and Tatum on the court. This is crazy. They're only outscoring teams by 3.7 points per 100, which is kind of wild to me, right? I mean, then you look at when it's just Tatum, those numbers are great, 16.9. And when it's just Jalen, it's 10.4. So I think the reason for that is because like Marcus Smart has to do more stuff off the ball when Jalen and Tatum are on the court. So that's why I think that number is what it is, because when he's just with one of them, they're running the offense through that, right? Like they'll do that. They'll do... Tatum will come up, he'll get a screen, he'll get the smaller guy on him, right? Like that type of stuff. And with Jalen, Marcus is really good finding Jalen when Jalen's coming off screens, coming off movement, when he's cutting, like those guys have a really good synergy. But when he doesn't have the ball in his hands as much, he really can't impact you as much because he's not a guy that's going to space the floor, right? So that's why I think that number's that way. So White sort of blends with everybody. Jalen seems like, Jalen seems to be better and the numbers would bear it out when it's just him and when it's him and Smart, like Smart's really good for Jalen in terms of setting him up when Tatum's not out there. So I just add it all up, right? And I want to say White because he's the safest pick here, right? Like I believe Derek White's going to have a good postseason. And I am a little bit concerned about Marcus Smart just from a health perspective and age perspective and all that. So I do want to say White, but I keep coming back to what we've been seeing from Brogdon lately, right? But the defense, like, if you look at his defense, I get it. It's not good. We laid that out. But his struggles come against smaller, quicker guards. Garland and Mitchell are on the other side of the bracket. They're not going to see them unless they both end up in the Eastern Conference Finals and Cleveland upsets Milwaukee, right? You look at the Celtics side of the bracket, the only real guy, like, you look at it against the Heat, there's nobody you're going to be worried about if they beat Atlanta. And then you think about it from the perspective of Philly, we laid it out the other day. They don't really have that type of guy with the exception of Maxi. Maxi's going to get hurt on the other side of the floor. So I don't really see Maxi being a problem. And then even the Milwaukee Bucks, who you would see in the NBA uh, Eastern Conference Finals, if you will, I almost said NBA Finals, but you would see them in the Eastern Conference Finals, of course. They don't have that guy, right? Like Drew Holiday's a great player. He's not that type of guy. They don't have that guy either. So because of that, I think that when I look at it, I'm going to go 
and I'm going to look at it, and I'm going to say it's going to be Malcolm Brogdon because of the matchups. I think they're going to need his offense. I think Derek White is going to be really good, but I think we're going to look at it, and we're going to say, hey, you know what? This guy is actually the one that makes the case as the best player, not Tatum or Jalen Brown. Like, I think he's actually going to have a better postseason than Derek White. And it pains me to say that because I love Derek White so much, but I just think that's going to happen. Oh, the other thing, I just want to give Derek White a ton of credit. Like, he's probably going to make an all-NBA defensive team. I hope he does. We'll see if he definitely does. But I'm just like, the guy played 82 games. I know I mentioned it earlier, but unbelievable. He's durable. He does everything the team asks him to do. He improves his weakness from last year. I just love everything he's brought to the table this year. So I just wanted to mention that I do believe he should make an all-defensive team. And he'll probably be the only Celtic if he does make it. And I do feel like if you're number two in the NBA in defense, you probably need a rep on one of the top two or there's only two all defensive teams. You probably deserve a spot. So I hope he gets that. All right. A lot more to get into. We'll get to the Red Sox. Not good news for them today, but they did get a win. So we'll get to that next. This episode is brought to you by cars.com. When you add your car to your garage on cars.com, you'll unlock access to real-time insights into how much your car is worth. Plus. View its historical and projected value to decide when to sell. So when the time is right, you can secure an instant offer from a local dealership or sell it yourself on cars.com. Start tracking your car's value with your garage on cars.com. This episode is brought to you by Atlassian. Atlassian software like Jira, Confluence, and Trello help power global collaboration for all teams so they can accomplish everything that's impossible alone. Because individually, we're great, but together, we're so much better. Learn how to unleash the potential of your team at Atlassian.com, A-T-L-A-S-S-I-A-N.com, Atlassian. Tap the banner or visit this episode's page to learn more. Welcome back into Off the Pike. We got time for a call, so let's hit that. The number is 617-396-7172. What do we got? Brian, aloha. Andy out here in uh, Honolulu. Great job on the show, man. Got to give you a quick call. Listen to the uh, Theo Epstein interview on the Ringer Network with Ryan Rossillo. The prodigal son will return. Listen to the end of it. You can just tell, right, the right opportunity. The Heim hiring makes sense. Some of the random decision-making makes sense. He's going to come back home, and uh, the system will be good from the farm. And, uh, yeah, just want to hear your thoughts on that because that's the takeaway I got from the great interview with Rosillo and uh, Theo Epstein. So uh, great win for the sack today. All right. Talk to you. All right. Great stuff. And, yeah, that was an awesome interview that Rosillo did with Theo Epstein. It, some of the stuff there was very compelling about, like, things that he thought he knew and then he completely changed his approach. Like, he was talking about the 2003 Red Sox team, and he thought, hey, let's just load up on sluggers. And then he realized the next year, like, hey, we have got to be like significantly better defensively. And they turned out to be one of the better defensive teams in Major League Baseball. I mean, think about the balls you have to have to trade away Nomar Garcia Parra for Orlando Cabrera and Doug Mankiewicz. He was talking about that in the interview. And I encourage you to listen to Rosillo's pod. <laughs> Literally, his brother texted him being like, what did you just do when he traded away Nomar for those guys? But obviously it ended up working and Nomar had all his issues in terms of the contract and all that. We talked about this in the past, but he had his issues with the organization at that point in time. But that takes some stones to be able to make a deal like that. And then he talked about the same thing. Like when he was with the Cubs, he built one of the best defensive teams in Major League Baseball. So I do encourage you to go back and listen to that. And it was it was crazy thinking back to that time. Like the dude was 28 years old, 28 years old running the Boston Red Sox. He was just like, it was unbelievable to think back to those times. And look, he was saying too, like 
that year, 2004, went by like a blur because like he's he's a guy from here and he wants this team to win, right? Like he's so glued into it and it just went by like a blur. And when he's in Chicago, he said he could remember everything, right? Because it's different. It's not like you're separated from the fan base, but he was in the fan base and now he's running the team. It was just wild. So it was a great podcast. I, I don't, want to, don't want to go through everything that he said on that podcast, but I do encourage you to go back and listen to that. In terms of Theo coming back, I mean, that would be incredible. I just don't see it happening. I don't. I mean, it would be unreal. He's one of, if not the best general manager we've seen in the past 20, 25 years or so. The guy's absolutely incredible. He's an unbelievable evaluator of talent. He built the Cubs, who are a complete dumpster fire, into a World Series team. Now, that run that they had didn't last as long as they thought it was going to be. But he was just unbelievable. So, I mean, I would love it. I, I loved Theo when he was here. I just don't see it happening, unfortunately. But it does kind of seem weird that that's the role that he has now, right? In terms of doing all this stuff, working for Major League Baseball. It does feel like he should be running a team. He's too smart of a guy to be doing that thing. Like, great. I mean, you're trying to make the product more entertaining, which I appreciate. Like, the fact that we get the pitch clock and we got all this different type of stuff in terms of the no shifts and all that. But I think Theo needs to be back in baseball. I just don't think it'll be with the Red Sox. All right, remember, if you want to leave a voicemail, 617-396-7172. You can also email your thoughts and questions to offthepike at gmail.com. So remember, Sale makes his third start of the season coming up this week, and Whitlock's going to make his debut. So if you guys want to weigh in on either of those, make sure to do so on the voicemail line or at offthepike at gmail.com. All right, so unfortunately, it was a good win for the Red Sox, but it came at a price. Adam Duvall had to leave that game on Sunday. He sort of, and if you didn't see the game, go back and watch the videos all over social media. So if you missed it, you can go back and catch it. But basically what happened is his glove got stuck and his, it looked like his wrist sort of just jammed. And remember, Adam Duvall, that left wrist, he needed surgery to repair a tendon sheath last season. And that injury occurred on July 23rd, didn't play the rest of the season to have the procedure. Alex Cora said, we're going to find out more tomorrow, meaning Monday. Chris Smith from Mass Live texted Bloom and Bloom texted him back saying, we'll have one tomorrow in terms of an answer and an update. So at this moment, as we're recording, we don't know what the severity of the injury is, and we probably won't find out until tomorrow. But the problem is that this is something the Red Sox, they cannot afford right now, right? This would be a massive gut punch. This is like the funnest part of the season was Adam Duvall so far. It's just been so good for this team. And I love that move, you know, from the beginning, but even I could not imagine this. Entering Sunday, he was already 1.1 wins above replacement. The season has barely started. He's the only guy over one. Entering Sunday, like the leaderboard obviously hasn't updated as we're recording right now. But so entering Sunday, 483, that was first in baseball, 16 points better than Luis Arise. 545 on base percentage. That was second. 1138 slug. That was first. It was 138 points better than Brian Reynolds, who was second. 1683 OPS, that was 251 points better than Brian Reynolds. I mean, this guy is off the charts. He's barreling up 24% of pitches. Only one guy was north of that last season. That was Aaron Judge. They need Adam Duvall in this lineup to provide them with thump. So this would be just a horrific loss for the Red Sox. Like, this guy is vital to the team. So just watching that today, I'm like, you got to be kidding me. Because you had that bad series against the Pirates, and they come back to Detroit. The game on Saturday was awesome. That home run that Rafi, it was an absolute bomb, okay? You have the Adam Duvall bomb as well. Rafi had another one, too, but the first one I'm talking about, I mean, that was a ridiculous shot that was just pure power that Rafi hit out. But nonetheless, 
you felt like, all right, you got something here. Like the lineup's coming together here. The bullpen has been so good for this team. More on that in a second here. But none of it works without Adam Duvall. You need Adam Duvall in the lineup for this thing to work. So hopefully we get good news, knock on wood, tomorrow. But this would just be devastating. I mean, this is what has made the Red Sox season fun. So there was other reasons, but this is what has made them the best offense or one of the best offenses, I should say, in Major League Baseball so far this season is having that guy in the middle of the lineup providing power. All right. So I do want to get to Kike because... Five errors entering play on Sunday at short. And then in that first inning, another issue. Now, he was not given an error on the Baez ground ball, but he threw that thing way off the bag. Cassis had to come way off the bag. Now, maybe you don't get Baez anyway, because that was a tough play to make in terms of actually being able to throw him out. But the throw, you don't even give yourself a chance there. And I did think he made a nice effort on the Torkelson swinging bunt, and they actually won the challenge. I don't know how Torkelson missed the back. How do you miss the new backs? I mean, they're massive. I don't know how how you could miss that, but he did. So I thought that was a nice effort. So maybe a good sign. Cora said that he thinks Kike is getting too robotic because those five errors, they lead Major League Baseball. Nobody has entering Sunday. Nobody had four. Kike has five, right? So in four of them were throwing errors. It's been an issue throwing the ball over to first base. So that certainly has to be cleaned up. And the thing that I was saying about Cora, Cora thinks he's being too robotic because Cora referenced the fact that he's one of the best athletes on the team, thinks he's just sort of being too robotic there. And look, we're talking about a guy that has only played 683 innings at shortstop, right? And this year, it's 65 innings prior to today. He was already at negative two defensive run saved, minus two defensive run saved. And we've played two weeks of baseball, right? And if you look at it in terms of baseball savants metric, same thing, outs above average, minus two as well. Only Ahmed Rosario is behind him there. That's the only shortstop that's been worse than Kike Hernandez in terms of the outs above average metric. So it's matching what we're watching. Like those numbers, I reference those numbers because those numbers illustrate what we've been watching, right? Kike has not been good at shortstop. So it's definitely a concern. I'm certainly going to say like, give it some time, right? But the early returns are not good. And prior to Sunday, you look at the numbers, 115, 233, 346, 579, and he didn't get a hit today. He did walk twice. I guess that's a good thing, right? But the strikeout rate, 26.7%. And he had, coming into the game on Sunday, eight strikeouts and three hits. I mean, it's, you're going to need more from him offensively. But look, so obviously he's going to hit better. I mean, he's not going to stay at this number all season long, right? He's not going to hit 100 for the year. But let's just say he gets back to what his best season was. And that was 2021 with the Red Sox in terms of a season when he at least had 300 plate appearances. I'm not talking about a season where he's playing 200 and he's having 250 plate appearances where he had good numbers because that's not a real season. I'm talking at least 300 plate appearances, right? And that's the year in 2021 where he went back to the leadoff spot. He hit the home run off Garrett Cole. Remember, he was the leadoff guy, then he wasn't. Then he hit the home run off Garrett Cole. He stayed there for a while. He had a nice run. But overall, he finished at 250. 337 on base percentage, a 449 slug, and a 786 OPS. So those numbers aren't great. But when you factor in that he had 14 defensive runs saved in center field, that was sixth among outfielders, factor that in, right? Because every guy in front of him in terms of the defensive run save played more innings. Kike was only at 716 and he had 14 defensive runs saved. So you look at it in terms of the outfield jump, his reaction, that's just feet covered in any direction. In the first 1.3 seconds, Kike was at 4.3. That was a full foot better than any other player in Major League Baseball when it comes to that in terms of the outfield jump. So you could see why those defensive numbers look so good because he got a really, really good jump. So when you're at your best, Kike as a center fielder, right? You're 250, 337, 449, 786. Those numbers look really good because it's coming with an elite level defender, right? He was very valuable in 2021. If you look at it just in terms of Fangraph's version of war, 
In 2021, he was 4.0 wins above replacement. That was third on the Red Sox, behind only Bogarts and Rafael Devers. And remember, Hunter Renfro hit 31 home runs that season. He slugged over 500, and he had a bunch of outfield assists. And still, Kike Hernandez was more valuable from a war perspective. That four wins above replacement was 40th in all of Major League Baseball. So that defense made him so important to this team. But if you're not hitting, right? If you're hitting like 240, 337, et cetera, those numbers, right? And you're leading Major League Baseball in errors with that number, your best season in 2021. So if he's putting up a 786 OPS, a 250 batting average, but you're leading Major League Baseball in errors and all the metrics look bad as well, the eye test looks bad. Well, then how valuable is that 250, 337, 786? The reason that was valuable from an offensive perspective is what you were getting defensively. And if he plays like a bottom three shortstop, which he is right now, if he plays this way, he needs to have like an on-base percentage, 380-ish, right? And an OPS that's approaching 900. If he's going to be this big of a butcher at shortstop, those numbers have to be astronomical from an offense perspective to justify him playing there, right? So he's, and like I said, he's not going to be this bad defensively all season long. He's getting used to it and all that. And he's not going to be this bad offensively. But you do have to think, is he ever even going to be an average shortstop? He's trying to do this like in his... 30s, right? Becoming an everyday shortstop this late in your career, we just don't ordinarily see that, right? And those career best numbers are, are not close to good enough, right? If he's going to be doing this. So I believe Kike is a valuable player, but as an outfielder, he right now is minus 0.2 wins above replacement. So he's below replacement level. Remember, Duvall, as I mentioned, at 1.1, which is ridiculous this early. But anyway, so look, the Red Sox didn't choose that their $140 million man was going to be hurt to begin the season. And that clearly is hurting you, not having Trevor Story at short. But you have a lot of eggs in the Kike at short basket because Arroyo is not an everyday player to begin with, from my perspective. Mondesi is still dealing with that injury. So there's really not like there's help on the way. The question I have now looking forward is when Trevor Story comes back this season, what is Kike? Is he the everyday second baseman? Because you're not putting now, knock on wood, that we get good news on Duvall, because then that answers the question easily if Duvall's hurt for a long time. But nonetheless, if Duvall's healthy, and this is just a minor thing. Duvall is your center fielder. Yoshida is your left fielder. Verdugo is your right fielder. There's no spot for him in the outfield where he's valuable. He's okay as a second baseman, but he's just not a valuable player if he plays in the infield. I mean, the numbers are what the numbers are. He's not a valuable member of this team unless he's playing in the outfield. Now, it's nice to have him, right, where you can move him around and he's versatile. Like, you need that type of player on your team, but right now, he's just a been a damaging player to the Red Sox, and there's no way around it. All right, I also want to get to Ref Snyder, right, because they're paying him $1.2 million for a very important role on this team. The guy absolutely clobbers left-handed pitching. We saw it again today in that fifth inning. He gets the slider from Boyd, hits it back up the middle, drives in Wong, makes it a 2-1 game. This guy crushes left-handed pitching. If you look at it last year, he had 359 against lefties. That was seventh of the 317 players that had at least 70 plate appearances against lefties. 359, seventh. How about the on-base percentage? 411, 13th. How about the OPS? 10.05, 11th, okay? So the reason I'm pointing this out now is obviously he had a nice game, although what was he doing on the basis? He just falls asleep. He almost got he almost got picked at first. I don't know what he was doing. Like, come on, man. Like, get it together here. But anyway, nonetheless, I want to get to this. So you look at this schedule. Wentz and Boyd, the past two games, lefties. How about this schedule coming up? Did Cora pointed this out after a game the other day? I had no idea that the schedule looked this way. Maybe you did, but I did not. So this is the schedule coming up for the Red Sox starting on Monday. Josh Fleming, lefty. For the Rays. Shane McClanahan, lefty for the Rays. Nasty too, right? Zach Eflin, righty. Okay, that's the one guy. Old buddy Jeffrey Springs, lefty. 
Patrick Sandoval, lefty, good pitcher too. Tyler Anderson, lefty. Reed Detmers, lefty. Jose Suarez, lefty. That's the schedule coming up for the Red Sox. It's all lefty. So I didn't even realize this, but nonetheless, it's great now that you have a guy like Ref Snyder. It's huge for you. You can give Yoshida a day off like you did on Sunday. You could do the same thing with Verdugo against the tef- tough lefty. So he's a big weapon. But you look at it last year and two, like in a small sample size as a pinch hitter, what he was able to do for this team. It's only 17 plate appearances, but it's worth mentioning that as a pinch hitter last year, 308, 461, 462 slug, 932 OPS. Not everybody can do that coming into the game where you're not playing at all and pinch hit. He was really good in some of these late game scenarios last year for the Red Sox, just coming off the bench and providing them with big hits. And we know he mashes lefties. So this is sort of an under the radar move for the Red Sox. This guy's going to be basically playing every day going forward for the next week and change because you're playing all lefties. It's absolutely insane. Okay. I did want to get to Casas because we talked with Steve Prault about the fact, what was this? The Thursday pod. They got to get him going. Well, good sign, right? He had a bomb in the top of the ninth, 107.4 off the bat. And that was great to see it. It was against a lefty. And that was after he doubled against the lefty, 105.8 off the bat. So starting to make some loud contact, which had been an issue the first couple of weeks. And as I mentioned, all these lefties coming up in terms of the Red Sox schedule, they need to, and I'm sure he'll get another day off during the stretch, but they're going to need to get Casas going. So I think it's important that Casas sort of got some confidence against the left-handed pitcher today or pitchers hitting a home run and a double. So that's big for them in terms of they need to get this guy going. And then the thing I noticed about him is if you look at it, he had been chasing a lot more pitches this season compared to when he came up last year. So if you look at it, he was swinging at 25.6% of pitches out of the zone entering Sunday's game. And it's not like a brutal number. It's 115th out of 195 qualified hitters. So not good, but it's not horrible. None. If you look at Justin Turner, by the way, only six batters swinging at less pitches out of the zone. He's at 15.3. Love that guy's approach at the play. But nonetheless, anyway, with Casas, I don't want to go into digression here. That number in terms of the pitches that he was swinging out of the zone last year was at 17.9. This year, as I mentioned, it's at 25.6. So after his debut last year, only Juan Soto, J.P. Crawford, Matt Chapman and Max Muncy swung at a lower percentage of pitches out of the zone than Cassis. That's 17.9%. So he was elite. So him being 115th in that category right now was an obvious sign that he was just not seeing the ball well, right? So what was that leading to? Well, not a ton of walks. He was at just 7.7%. Last year when he came up, he was at almost 20%. Only Aaron Judge, we've alluded to this fact before, was walking more often than Tristan Cassis was. So the contact because of that too has been sort of weak. South of 23% in terms of the hard hit rate, balls off the bat 95 plus entering Sunday. That number was over 41% last season. So he looked like himself today at the plate, which hopefully that's sort of a sign of things to come where he actually looks like he's tracking the ball well. He wasn't tracking the ball well for the majority of the season, which had been an issue for him. So hopefully that today was a sign of things to come and maybe Casas gets hot here, okay? Although it's going to be tough based on all the lefties he's going to face in the next couple of weeks. I mean, if you're a lefty on the Red Sox, this sucks for you. All right, I do want to get to Josh Winkowski, though, because he was good again today. He had a strikeout on a nasty slider. He got Cabrera to ground out, and he got Scope to fly out. Easy one, two, three inning for Josh Winkowski. And by the way, his grandparents were on the broadcast today. They were being interviewed by Jemai Webster. He does a great job, Vanessa. They were awesome. I loved his grandparents. If so, if you saw the game, you know what I'm talking about. If not, just just take my word for it. They were very entertaining. Okay. His grandfather was saying <laughs> that he was never the funny one. That's what he said. Oh, that's yeah, he was never really the funny one. He just wanted to play baseball. It was fun. Anyway, so the pop-up, weak contact, the ground ball, that's what he does. He gets a ton of ground balls. So if you look at this stuff with Josh Winkowski, here's what's impressive about 
Josh Winkowski in 2023 compared to Josh Winkowski in 2022. The strikeout rate entering Sunday was 25%, okay? That was 87th of 210 relievers. So, above average. Last year, that number was at 13.9%. That was 182nd out of 188 pitchers that threw at least 70 innings. So, we're talking about a jump of 11.1 percentage points. He's a guy that's striking guys out way above the average rate compared to a guy that was way below the average rate last season, one of the worst in baseball. Problem last year was kind of obvious, right, with the strikeouts is he didn't miss bats. Two swing and misses again in that one inning today. His swinging strike rate, so the percentage of pitches that you're getting swinging strikes, that's 12.8%. That's 80th of 210 relievers. So again, well above average. That number last season was at 7.0, 186th of those 188 pitchers that threw at least 70 innings, okay? So he was not missing bats at all. Only two guys were missing bats less often than Josh Winkowski. This year, he's well above average. That is a massive step forward in terms of 5.8 percentage points, right? And we knew that he's a guy, and I this I used to call him ground ballski last year because when he came up, I was so excited. You looked at his AAA numbers, he had all these ground balls. So if you look at the ground ball rate, this year he's at 64.7%. That's 28th. Last year, he was good, too. 51.7%, 17th among those pitchers to throw 70 innings. I did the 70 innings because he was in the bullpen and he started, so I didn't want to compare him uh, against just relievers or just starting pitchers. But the point being there is that that ground ball thing was real last year. We started at the major league level. The big thing was, hey, can he just miss some bats? And he's answered that question. So I got to be honest. I didn't see this coming from Winkowski. It seemed like that he was just going to be a guy that didn't miss bats at all. So I think what happened here is going to the bullpen, he's going to be more, I don't want to say all out, but he doesn't have to worry about facing hitters the second time through the order. And the stuff is playing, right? The stuff is, and the velocity on the fastball is harder. That two-seamer, I should say, the sinker that he throws, he gets all those ground balls. It's at 95.2 this year. Last year was sitting at 94. So obviously I told you with the ground balls, but the launch angle is even better than... (laughs) Last year, it's at minus eight, the launch angle, okay? Last year is at two. So basically everything is a ground ball when that ball gets hit. The slider this year, it's up from 85 points. It's up to 85.6 last year, 84.8. And he's using a cutter more, which is an interesting pitch for him, okay? He's using it more than the four-seamer against lefties, which is what he used last year. And that cutter has 5.7 inches of vertical break on average. That's up from last year at 3.9. And so if you look at that number on the cutter, the horizontal break, only 15 guys had a cutter that had more horizontal break than 15.7 last year. So that's a really good pitch. So the cutter has been good. The slider has been good. We know about the sinker, the two-seamer, if you will, that he gets all the ground balls with. So I'm starting to believe in him. Like, the stuff looks real. I don't think this is anything fluky or anything along those lines. I just think the stuff is playing a lot better than it was a season ago. I did give him a ton of credit for that. All right, I did want to get to this. So now the Sox open up a four-game series with the Tampa Bay Rays. The Sox are, what, five and four after the sweep of the Tigers, and now you get Tampa Bay, who has outscored teams by 57 runs. They are undefeated at 9-0. So this is a huge series. Oh, and by the way, just a note before you get ready for the series. Remember, the games start at 640. I don't know why the fuck they start at 640. That's the time they started at Tampa. So just remember that because I know some of you may be like, wait, hold on. I, I turn on the game. It's the second inning. What did I miss? Yes, they started at 640. I don't know why, but they do. So Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, it's 640. And then Thursday, it goes back to uh, it's a day game. It's a one o'clock game. But this is a massive early series, okay? So a couple of reasons this is important. The Rays kicked the Red Sox ass last season. 7-12 and altogether, but at the trop, it was bad. The Red Sox were 1-9 and against Tampa in that horrible building. 
They scored just 27 runs in 10 games, so 2.7 per game. They were outscored 46 to 27. They went 65 of 329, 198. They could not hit there whatsoever. They got blasted. They got absolutely blasted. That was embarrassing. So I know a lot of these guys are new to the team, obviously, right? But there has to be some level of pride factor. You cannot continue to get your teeth kicked in by this Tampa Bay Rays team. Okay. And then another important note with this series, Sale and Whitlock pitch, right? And we mentioned this briefly earlier, but for Sale, if he pitches the way he did the last two times out, it's going to be highlighted more because he is going to get absolutely rocked by the Rays, okay? He will get clobbered. And we know what Tampa likes to do. They're just going to put a ton of righties in the lineup against Chris Sale. Oh, and speaking of righties, well, Franco, by the way, is a switch hitter, but more power from the right side. 727 slugging percentage entering today, 1144 OPS. So he's hot. And he had was not great at the end of last season. He's dealing with all these injuries, but he's back to being Wander Franco. A Rosarena's hitting 367, 1139, okay, OPS. So this guy's been hitting the shit out of the ball too. So you know they're going to stack that lineup, as we mentioned, with the righties. So Sale's going to prove, okay, I can beat this Tampa team or at least be competitive against this Tampa team because you cannot have a bad outing against this club. He's got to be sharp. And then you look at Whitlock. We got to see how he's improved, right? Remember last year, a second time through the order as a starter. Opponents hit 299, 333, 567 slug. So they killed him last year. They killed him. He got killed the second time through the order. So you know how I feel about Whitlock. I think more of the issues last year were health than it was like, being a starter or being a reliever. But with that being said, I also have to acknowledge that he's got to prove he can go through the lineup the second time because we haven't seen him do it with success at the major league level. And I think the other component is you need Whitlock, right? He needs to be number one or number two in this rotation. Hulk has thrown the ball well to begin the year, but he's not never going to be a guy that goes deep into games. And he threw the ball really well on Saturday. Sale, as we alluded to, it's still wait and see with him. But Whitlock has to be a major part of this, okay? All right, so next up, you have to prove you can hit these guys, okay? Because we gave you that number where they hit south of 200 at the drop last year. But McClanahan and Springs are going to be in this series, as we mentioned with those, all those lefties. McClanahan is one of the nastiest guys in the sport. Despite what the Sox did to him out of the bullpen in the 2020 postseason run, or 2021 postseason run, I should say, Jeffrey Springs is dealing to start the year as well. So McClanahan is filthy, one of the best pitchers in the sport, and Springs has just been unreal. Raffy last year at the drop, was not good. 10 strikeouts north of 30%. He was 7 of 33. Did not hit at all at the drop last year. The Sox as a team were just one hit 191 in 13 and a third against McClanahan at the drop. He struck out 27.7% of batters. So he completely dominated the Red Sox. And this year, when you look at Jeffrey Springs, our old friend, this is like the one of the guys that Bloom should have kept. Like one of the, remember those, all those relievers they had in 2020? Like this is the one guy they should have kept and they didn't keep him. But anyway, and not that I knew that was going to happen. Like I didn't watch Jeffrey Springs in 2020. Like I'm not saying that. I wasn't like, oh, this guy's going to be great. No, nobody thought that. But anyway, getting back to my original point, Springs this year, 42.2% strikeout rate to start the year. In terms of starters, qualified starters, only DeGrom's higher than that. 0.73 opponents batting average, 0.54 whip. He has been absolutely filthy. So this Red Sox team, who we saw them hit the ball well against this Tigers group, they really, really need to light up the Rays a couple of times in this series. I don't think you're going to light up McClanahan or Springs, but you got to do something to get some confidence at the trot because last year, let's be real, that was just painful to watch. That was awful, awful to watch. And that's why they really could use Duvall in this series because we know that that guy absolutely murders left-handed pitching. All right, as always, make sure to get your voicemails in 617-396-7172, 617-396-7172. You can email your thoughts and questions to offthepike at gmail.com as well. Thanks to Jamie McClellan and Steve Strudy for producing this podcast, and we'll chat with you guys in a couple of days. 
This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You might say all kinds of stuff when things go wrong, but these are the words you really need to remember. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. They've got options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there.